Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Do you think bananas are healthy? Think again. I'm Dr. Stephen Gundry, best-selling author of the Plant Paradox series, and on the Dr. Gundry podcast, you're going to learn the foods to eat and the ones to avoid, to lose weight, boost your energy, and feel your most vibrant, active self this year. You'll also learn simple tips from the world's top experts on health and nutrition. Plus, you'll discover the truth about calories, how running could actually be hurting your health, and why fat won't make you fat. Subscribe now to the Dr. Gundry podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. Well, you may be surprised to learn that health insurance doesn't necessarily cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit, well, you can get hit with the full cost or co-pays or deductibles. So protect your family and your finances with Air MedCare Network memberships. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That's pennies a day for peace of mind and security for your entire family. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. For a limited time, as a Dr. Drew listener, you'll get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Remember, it's only $85 a year anyway. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Appreciate you guys being here and supporting the people who support us. Uh, please do check out the drdrew.com materials, all the good podcasts and streaming shows that we have there. And uh, I'm over there on TikTok now trying to create some content. So if you could join me there, I'd appreciate it as well. And watch out for some of the Instagram lives that we're doing if you want to participate in that. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Simon McCarthy-Jones. Uh, Dr. McCarthy-Jones, a clinical psychology, neuropsychology associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. His PhD is Essentially, uh, he's a research psychologist. Let's just put it that way. Simon, welcome. Thanks, Dr. Dre. And you were just starting to tell me before the mics heated up about your general area of research and what happened with this book. The book is The Upside of Your Downside, available now on Amazon. Website is Simon McCarthy Jones with MC, capital C-A-R-T-H-Y dot com. Simon, S-I-M-O-N, McCarthy Jones dot com. Hallucinations was your primary region of research. You missed the title of the book there. It's Spite, The Upside of Your Downside. Oh, sorry. The book is called Spite, The Upside of Your Downside, available on Amazon. Uh, Originally released in 2007, but it's available now at Amazon. And again, Dr. McCarthy Jones' website is Simon McCarthy Jones, S-I-M-O-N-M-C, capital C-A-R-T-H-Y, Jones. 
All right, now I have to correct something. It was originally released in 2020. That is a typo on our bio. (laughs) But the book is Spite, The Upside (laughs) of Your Downside, available now on Amazon. Leave that in. Let's have that. Let's have that. Make make no. Get the book now. Uh, Simon, but your original area of research was hallucination. Yeah, so I spent 10, 15 years and still do uh, researching into hallucinations and all aspects of that. Um, which, if we get around to talking to, I'll be fascinated to hear your perspective on that. And by, by hallucination, um, do you mean uh, you mean all manif- all aspects of hallucinatory experiences in the sense that whether it's pharmacologically induced or psychopathologically induced, all the different kinds of halluc- circumstances for hallucinations? I'd focus on people who hear voices just spontaneously, yeah, rather than drug induced. Interesting, uh, which is interesting. Just let, let's, let's, as long as it's on mine right now, let, let's talk about it a little bit because that auditory hallucinations is sort of a special case in that people can, in my experience, people can have auditory hallucinations without te- without meeting criteria for serious mental illness. Does that fit your research? It does these days. I mean, historically, <laughs> historically, so go back a few decades. I mean, if you heard a certain type of voice, maybe a voice commenting um, um, or a voice talking to another voice, then that alone could get you a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Mm. These days, the the criteria have changed and a hallucination per se wouldn't be indicative of necessarily any psychiatric disorder. Right. There's plenty of people um, around the world who hear voices and cope with it just fine. So it's not necessarily a sign of mental illness? It, 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 well, not serious mental illness, not diagnosable mental illness, but also in my experience, people who hear voices aren't, oh man, I got to choose my words carefully here, may have some minor psychopathology that doesn't meet criteria, diagnostic criteria. In fact, that's usually been my experience. Does that also fit? Yeah, it, it, it seems to, to run the whole, the whole gamut from, so, from so, one end of the spectrum to the other. And, and what is it? What do, you, what, do you find, what do you find in neurobiologically? Neurobiologically, you're finding much of the same thing going on as when we when we perform our own inner speech. So, you know, we, we all talk to ourselves in our heads and it gets you through the day. But what you see in when people are hearing voices is you see the same broad type of activation, except particular parts of the brain, like the, the supplemental motor area, which would normally light up to tell you that it's you speaking, aren't lighting up. So it seems to be your brain producing the speech, but just you not being aware or being given that feeling of agency over your own speech. There's potentially roots in memory, in in your in vivid threat perception as a, as a whole. It seems to be many things rather than just one thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and my guess is something similar happens in dreams. In dreams, possibly. I mean, so you can have hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. So when you're coming in and out of sleep, you can have very vivid, vivid hallucinations. What is, I know it, what is hypnopompic? I'm not sure I know what that is. That's when you're coming out of sleep. Uh-huh. So just, just upon waking, yeah. you kind of wake and you, you hear a voice. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they seem to be slightly different mechanisms, possibly more, more due to kind of, you know, things associated with REM sleep rather than kind of the, the types of hallucinations that folks are having in clear consciousness. They seem to be distinct. And they're different phenomenology too. So, if you look at the types of voices people hear when they're awake in clear consciousness, um, as you know, it's very common for people to get commands or they're very action focused. They seem to be less like that on the edge of sleep, which suggests, again, that they're a different kind of phenomena. I, I in talking to patients, you know, often it's sort of it, almost always, you know, on the verge of command or persecutory kinds of stuff. But I've had occasional stuff when I'm waking up and I'll hear something. It's usually somebody calling my name, something like that. Yeah, that's the most common. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and what got you into this? Into hallucinations or yeah. spite? Halluc- we're getting to spite in a second. I'm almost there. Hallucinations? Uh, yeah. I, I started off with just a fairly kind of dry academic interest. And then I had the, the chance to actually sit down with, with people who were hearing voices. And they told me their story. And that was just that was just mind-blowing. I sat down with person after person who just told me about the most horrific things happening in their childhood. So rape, physical abuse all sorts of traumas. And it seemed that those traumas were really tightly tied to their hallucinations, both in terms of maybe triggering the onset and informing the content. So whereas you know, the, the books I've been reading, the papers I've been reading were kind of um, hallucinations as a, just an, an alteration of, the, say, the dopaminergic system, yeah. spontaneously creating these voices, they seem to have a very tight link to people's own lives. And that seemed to have been overlooked. I mean, obviously, there still is a potential role for dopamine. But again, where have those dopamine changes potentially come from? 
bad things happening to you in your life? Well, my guess, you know, I do a lot of work in trauma and trauma. I think we've been through sort of a pandemic of trauma the last 30, 40 years. And the in broad strokes, <clears throat> the neurobiological consequences of trauma is sort of a disintegration of regions of the brain and brain body. And I wonder if some of that disintegration is causing the shutdown of the associated motor co- cortex and literally connecting to the trauma or the bodily-based, you know, the so-called body remembers the trauma kind of stuff, the Vanderquote kind of yeah. things, wh- wh- whether that's all hooked together in some dissociative yeah. but interesting way. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, I mean, some of having talked to those people and having heard their experiences, I also kind of shifted to a focus on what child abuse does to people, potentially. Oh, oh you so have. Some people will be resilient. That's so, what you're doing now? Um. Partly, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I've got a so, focus at the moment on, on okay, shame. So, so okay, sh- shame is a common sort of consequence of that. Yeah, Dep- I, I bounce all over the place. Yeah, depending on the age and stuff. But but yeah. uh, so, you, you must be familiar with Porges, Fonagy, and Shore's work, yes? Alan Shore, Peter Fonagy. Well, you must read from, this stuff. I guess I focus more on A, the health impact, and B, on the, the neuroimaging studies. Okay. So, which which would probably fit into what you were just saying. So, I mean, one study we did looked at the the neural changes, the white matter changes associated with having suffered childhood trauma. Yeah. Finding things like the corpus callosum seemed to be uh, reduced in integrity in those, those who suffered trauma, which again would fit into maybe disconnection models of how trauma might impact upon things like hallucinations. So that kind of ties into what you're saying. And it, it makes sense also in my understanding that the, the right side of the brain is more embedded in the bodily-based experiences and it, there's some sort of somatoform dissociation often with trauma and that would help with that disconnect if you're not – if you're conscious, linear – uh, uh, speech-oriented uh, uh, sort of uh, part of the brain, and and I'm being I'm being uh, rhetorically excessive by lateralizing the brain like that. I know, but there is sort of a more deeper embedding in the right side in the body, as I understand it. And a lot of these people that are dissociated really are disconnected from their body. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean it's an interesting point you make about laterality. So. Yeah. I mean, if you have a stroke and it knocks out your your right broker's area, so the the, the right hemisphere equivalent of the left area, which mm-hmm. produces speech in the left hemisphere, mm-hmm. if you knock out right broker's area, then you, t- then you tend to find a very different effect as if you knock out left broker's area. So if left broker's area is knocked out so you can't speak, the types of things you tend to produce are quite short, maybe vulgar utterances, which tie into kind of the type of phenomenology we see in some voices, because obviously a lot of voices are quite derogatory and insulting. So you could see as you could see a potential for 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 right broker's area, which tends to produce this short, abusive, repetitive speech. Interesting. You could see that as having a role in, in some voice hearing experiences. All right, it's, it's are, are, I'm fascinated by that. Maybe we should come back and talk about trauma as a separate thing. Let, let's go to spite, the upside of your downside. Yes. Tell me about the book. Tell me what we we've got in there, and uh, let's let's get into the topic. I guess I guess the first question is like why we should care about spite at all. Um, so. Well, let's, let's start off with what spite is. So yes, please. Form, formerly, so I, I see spite mentioned a lot in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last time I saw it come up, I think Trump was being criticised for uh, firing SecDef Esper out of spite mm-hmm. by the by the congressional Democrats, and I don't, it wasn't spite at all. It was self interest, and the Democrats were using spite to basically say this is something I disapprove of, rather than a technical definition. So, if we go to for a technical definition, we'd say that spite in a strong sense is inflicting a harm or a cost on somebody else and paying a harm or cost yourself so it's kind so, of pay to punish type behavior okay so the so, uh, fascinating so it re- that reminds me of the classic experiment that i know has been criticized <clears throat> but it's still a pretty impressive experiment with the cappuccino monkeys and the cucumbers versus the grapes where mm-hmm. you, you know what i'm talking about where they 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 have two monkeys side by side. They give them cucumber, 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 yep. and then they give the one a grape, and the other one starts throwing the cucumber back at the investigators. Yeah. And yeah. in other words, the monkey's willing to hurt himself to express his aggression towards the other monkey. Yeah, yeah. So, it's kind of conflicting studies. So I, I know, I know that's been criticized. To, you go, but go, yeah. but, I, but it was a pretty dramatic and pretty well done study. I, yeah. I, but go ahead. Go ahead. So if you speak to the primatologists, they tend to suggest you can see spite in uh, in our cousins, such as uh, chimps and bonobos. Psychologists tend to be a bit, a bit more sceptical. Um, so there's been some studies done showing that if you if you give uh, a chimp some bananas and then kind of slide those bananas across to another chimp, 
and give the chimp who the bananas are moving away from the chance to kind of pull a rope and collapse a table which the bananas are on to stop the bananas going to his 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 friend they tend not to pull it they tend not to be too fussed about their colleagues um getting free bananas whereas a human would be often quite annoyed about that but as you say with with the grape study it seems to differ according to the experimental setup so things things were a bit murky there i think well back to the monkey and the chimpanzee and the banana if there are limited resources does it increase the probability of the table collapsing i don't think that's been looked at i mean in humans again ramping up competition seems to have a huge impact upon spike which again maybe we can come back to in a bit but i haven't seen that necessarily done with monkeys but I mean, there's reason to think it would do, yeah. Yeah. So my immediate sort of take on spite, and it's a word I don't use very often, interestingly, because I'm very cognizant of another word, envy. And mm. in some sense, these things are related, they, This and the spite is in a way an expression of envy. Because envy is, in my understanding, not just I, I want what you have, but I have to knock you down. I have to bring you down to yeah. me, even if it hurts me. And that's spite. Mm. Uh, so spite and envy seem very tightly wound. Yeah. I guess I'd see spite as, as a behavior. So yeah. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. think about yeah. how we interact with other people yeah. and kind of your actions can have pros or cons. Yeah. So there's four basic human behaviors in that view. So there would be selfishness. Uh, I benefit myself but hurt you. Cooperation. I benefit, you benefit altruism which i know you were talking about a few weeks ago where i lose a new benefit mm-hmm. and then there's this fourth behavior spite which is where we both lose so whereas cooperation raises all ships uh, spite sinks all ships so, so i'd see spite as a behavior and then tying that into what you were saying i'd see things like anger and envy as emotions which, which drive spiteful behavior yes i 100 agree with that and, and- Give me the broad strokes. Uh, it feels like spite is uh, everywhere I turn, uh, and and electronic media has uh, amplified or at least uh, rewarded spite-like behaviors. What what's the broad stroke here? What's going on? How'd you get interested in this? What's your overall assessment of our of our setting of spitefulness? Mm, that's a that's a big question. It is a big question, um, but I want to then I want to go into the micro from there. Yeah. So I guess this this why spite then. So if you if you think about what is special about us as, as humans, um, what our human superpower is. I'm beginning is. to wonder <laughs> what's special <laughs> about us these days. But yeah. go ahead, our but superpower. Guess, go ahead, superpower. If I said we had a superpower, yeah. I mean, what what might you think a human superpower I, 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 was? The the only power, the only really phenomenal thing we have. It, well, we have this brain that that's plastic, but it's 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 what we do with one another. Uh, uh, so yeah, yeah it's it's and what we're able to build together. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so it seems because we would be as, as individual, even as small groups, we would be shit out of luck. We, we would we would have yeah. no chance competing. You know, but this sociality yeah. makes us extraordinary. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So I think I think it's safe to say that cooperation is the human superpower. Again, cooperation is a win-win situation. Well, hold on. So, I, I'm if, sorry. If, I have so many questions. I'm so fascinated by all this. But but if that's true, it, it, then from an evolutionary perspective, that should be all we do. Why do we then have this other thing wired into us that, that's a counterforce, spite? Yeah, well, that's, that, that's a very good question. Because spite pays evolutionarily. For the individual. Um, for the individual. Not yeah, for the group of the individual. So there's always this group individual thing with humans, right? Yeah. It, 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 well, there's three things. There's, there's group, species, and individual. And they yeah. seem like competing forces to me. Well, not competing. Overlapping forces of some type. Yeah. Um, yeah. I tend to focus on individual benefits in the book. Okay. Just because when you start talking about group selection, okay. people make strange noises at you. So yes, yes, I yes. Tend not to talk about that. All right. Int- really interesting. Um, okay, go ahead. So this yeah, so um, – Cooperation is our superpower. And you might say, well, other animals cooperate. And they do. Um, slime molds cooperate. Yeah. Don't ask me how. Um, bees well, vol- uh, cooperate. Vol- Volvoxes cooperate. cooperate. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. But they, when you see other animals cooperating, it tends to be that they're cooperating with, with close family because of the obvious genetic benefits. Mm-hmm. What we seem to do differently is we can cooperate with, with complete strangers. And other species don't seem to do that. Insects. So, I mean, insects do, don't they? I guess they're all related, aren't they, insects? More so, more yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, I mean, got it's, it. Okay. It's always on a spectrum. Okay. But, I mean, 
So I, mean, I, mean, I guess that's the reason why why we, are, for good or for ill, kind of dominate the planet. If, if we could ch- if we could teach chimps to cooperate with yeah. stranger chimps, yeah. then we could well be on our, our way to Planet of the Apes. Okay. Um, but at the moment, we, we kind of own this. Mm-hmm. And so spite seems like a direct threat to human cooperation. Human cooperation helps us thrive. We need to cooperate to solve many of the messes that we find ourselves in. And yet spite seems to be the exact opposite would therefore kind of be a form of our kryptonite almost it threatens our superpower yeah so it seems important to look at keep and then from, keep from a number of perspectives spite seems to make little sense so if you're an if you're an economist you'd think that um it's in our self-interest always to kind of take whatever money is on offer to act in our self-interest and not to turn down free money um and when you go back to like the classical economist people like adam smith adam smith said you know it's it's gonna be fairly rare that we're spiteful and even then we'll probably be prudential considerations would take over and we wouldn't let ourselves be spiteful and yet when you look at the economic literature there's a pile of research showing that we often are quite happy to turn down free money um with uh with higher goals in mind or at least seemingly higher goals in mind H- higher goals justice Co- fairness uh, cooperative kind of cooperative goals not spiteful goals yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, but he said – but he he pointed out very clearly that man doesn't just seek to be loved but to be seen to be lovely I think is how he put it. In other words, yeah. we like to be loved – we're seen, seen as important to our peers, to other humans. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's an yeah, expression you know, of that, right? Yeah. I mean often morality is a, a, merely a cloak for domination we, and the best way to, to fool other people into thinking that you're moral is to believe it yourself. Whereas when you do the detailed studies to try and tease out why people are doing what they're doing, the uh, the narrative of fairness evaporates slightly, and um, goals of domination and personal advancement kind of come through. So, we're, we're okay, so that's uh, that's pretty interesting. So, so, ugh. so if we look at the okay, I'm gonna I I don't mean to sort of draw you out of the of the of your domain, which is research and neurobiology, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> so so we, we step back and let's look at Rousseau and the French Revolution, right? Uh, yep. Rousseau was uh, intolerance in the name of tolerance. Man had to be forced to be free, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And then a small group came out and acted that out clearly in the name of their self-interest, but the spite spiraled out of control, Right. Where mm-hmm. one group be spited another, <laughs> and doesn't yeah. it feel like we're getting into a similar cycle these days? I guess that very much depends on your perspective. <laughs> oh, t- oh, tell me, um, tell me, explain. It well, just, I guess it, I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean that we're going to be you know, having guillotines per se, or that there's revolution coming. I'm just saying that it's that same kind of phenomenon of poof, spite being acted out on a large scale. Mm. So, spite. As you're kind of intimating, you know the Saint-Just quote about uh, about the French Revolution uh, notwithstanding. So, which is forcing what? people to be free. Oh yeah, the, the Rousseau the, the forcing people yeah. To, yeah. To, be, to be free. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, spite is a phenomenally powerful tool if you can consciously be aware of what you're doing and you can kind of bring reason back in. You can kind of engage those kind of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex regions and, and get control of it again. So, so spite and the, the mechanisms underlying it can be incredibly impactful. They can push us to do things which really don't make much sense. I mean, if if you are trying to fight a, a tyrannical government and you know, you've got little chance of success, it's, it's clearly a foolish thing to do. So you need some kind of mechanism which will allow you to take on forces which likely you can't beat, but to, to fight that fight nonetheless. And the mechanisms involved in spite seem to be something that, that can help us to do that. So, but then again, it's it's making sure once you once you reach the point of your goal that you're you're not going into the darker side of spite where your personal domination comes online. It's trying to use spite between balancing um, egalitarian goals and kind of maybe not tr- going down the route of dominance, which is, it will push you. Does that ever happen historically? Do people get that balance um, right? It's very hard. To- I guess we're opening up questions now about human nature, aren't we, yeah. in a sense? So, well, again, no, not really. Because I, I, I agree with I, I, everything you said I agree with, but I just look at the historical record and go, eh, tends not to stop. Wish it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's having the social structures which allow it to stop. So, uh, example. So you mentioned Rousseau. So, again, Rousseau, we're thinking about questions of what kind of creature are we? Yeah. When we're living kind of in a state of nature, mm-hmm. are we naturally egalitarian Communal right. creatures, Hobbes, Hobbes, versus, Ru- kind of, Hobbes versus Rousseau. Yeah, 
always seems to be Rousseau versus Peterson these days with the, with the lobsters. But, oh, Jordan Peterson. So, okay. Well, it's a little yeah. bit more about hierarchy, but go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. So one of the things I talk about, which I found really interesting, was some anthropology work trying to understand, again, what what human nature is. So obviously, we can't go back 50, 100,000 years into the, into the period where we were really kind of um, – evolving to be kind of the creature and the species we are but we can look at contemporary hunter-gatherer tribes which kind of give us a window into maybe what we might have been like fifty thousand years ago and the types of things that we evolved um into our nature and so christopher boom uh, anthropologist looked at 300 odd contemporary hunter-gatherer societies and he found that almost uniformly they were egalitarian in nature so if anybody tried to kind of put their head above the parapet start bragging start tr- trying to dominate the group would pull them down and extreme cases kill them. So it seems to be that in those smaller hunter-gatherer societies, it was possible to maintain a kind of a degree of egalitarianness. And you would think that humans were egalitarian creatures. An important caveat would be that that's egalitarian between men and men. Um, the relationships were not egalitarian between men and women, unfortunately. Anyway, the question then becomes, doesn't that, how doesn't do you that render that? it That just renders it non-egalitarian by, by today's standards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the question is then, looking around the world today, it's fairly clear that we have quite a strong kind of hierarchical dominance element to our nature. We we form into hierarchies. Kids, when they even infants, can see dominance and know to attend to it in the world. So how did that change? And the anthropologists would argue that it was through the the agricultural revolution, Pro- where you had property. this ability property. now for people. Yeah, property. Yeah, yeah. people could amass fortunes. <laughs> And it was very hard for the group to control those individuals. So therefore, hierarchical dominance behaviours could flourish and society changes. So we seem to have these two sides, this counter-dominant egalitarian side and this kind of hierarchical dominant side. And they seem both to be able to drive us to spite for different reasons. Give me the reasons. Well, it, so kind of the, the archetypal way that uh, economists measure spite is through something called the ultimatum game. So in this, you come into a lab and you're told there's someone else in the next room and they've been given, say, $10 and they've been asked to share some of it with you. And you get a little note through the door saying that they've offered you, say, $2 and you can choose to either accept that $2 and you walk away with $2 and the other person keeps the remaining amount, which will be $8. Or you can just say, no, I reject your offer. And if you reject the offer, you get no money and the other person gets no money. So the, the rejection will be seen as spiteful because yeah. everyone's lost. And that's kind of how the, the economists uh, basically measure spite. So you can understand that behavior as being due to maybe a, a counter-dominant urge. How, how, that, what percentage uh, of people blow the thing up like that? Do we know? So if people are offered about $2 out of the 10, then around half will say, no way. It's so bizarre to me. That's yeah. so bizarre. They could give me 50 cents and I would still feel like, oh, I'm walking away better than we started. Good for you yeah. for having the 10 bucks. Well, that's what the economists thought that people would do. And again, that's what that's what our, our But, our but wouldn't that be more to egalitarian do. to go, congratulations, you have $10 and thank you for sharing a little bit with me? Again, if you were, if you, if you were a Buddhist, and again, <laughs> this study has been done in the scanner with Buddhist meditators. Yeah. They seem quite happy to accept the money. So again, right. maybe. I guess I'm, I'm enlightened. I'm a Buddhist <laughs> that's, that's at heart. I'm thinking so. That, that's, by the way, why, the, why I'm so confused by so much of the spite and envy that's out there. It's like, hey, there's billionaires. Good for them. As long as everyone else boats comes up and we have evidence that uh, they, they having billions helps everybody else rise in some way. Taking their billions and giving it to everybody, that'd be about eight bucks a person. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what the, what's the point of being so envious and spiteful? I think it's it's our evolved tendency. For, I mean, social status is, is is such an important predictor of reproductive success in in our history that, again, anything to do with our position in the hierarchy, our status is going to be incredibly salient and incredibly important so, so, to us. So interesting, could, isn't it interesting? Always uh, that's interesting. Right? It, something's coming a little clearer for me that I've always thought was just uh, not understandable from an evolutionary perspective, which was, for instance, like what the Aztecs would do. They they would take the brightest, most attractive people and and kill them. And skin them and wear their skin. Uh, and it's like, why would – from an evolutionary perspective, that's the, those are the people they should be reproducing. Why, why do they do that? Mm. But I, I guess this is that countervailing force, the, the social force. Yeah. 
again, it goes back to the hunter-gatherers kicking out the successful people. So even if you've killed a mammoth and you've dragged it home, you've got meat for everyone, that's still going to be looked upon negatively because you're perceived as thinking that you're better than everybody else, which is seen as a threat. And So which behavior should we be trying to contain? <laughs> the, the one, the hierarchical behavior or the excessively spiteful behavior? Isn't that kind of the question? It is. It is. I mean, it's, it's a, and that's that's the that's the judgment question. That's the moral question. I mean, we kind of back to Aristotle, where he says that you know, there's, there's praise for somebody who, for example, gets angry at the right things at the right time and to the right amount, and that's again that's where the judgment comes in. Yeah. So I guess once you understand what is potentially in us, you can be mindful of it and try and try and steer your ship, put your hand on your own rudder, and point yourself where you want to point, not where evolution necessarily wants to point us to go. How would that? How does that? practically manifest does that practically manifest yeah well i mean is that awareness of morality is it uh trying to suppress spitefulness when it exists i i think it's emotion regulation so again if if you can feel spiteful behaviors on your radar again there's there's certain steps which are just basic anger management techniques that you could that you can enact to try so anger so anger is the anger is the feeling that we need to regulate Regulate, yeah, anger, envy, those would seem to be, and, and disgust as well. So again, if, if when folks are playing the ultimatum game and they get a really crappy offer, say two bucks, if you look at their faces, what you see or what the studies show is that the particular pattern of facial muscle movements mirrors what you'd expect if someone's disgusted. Mm. So you seem to get both anger and disgust and anger plus disgust equals outrage. <laughs> Got to check out Air Doctor, featured on CNN, one of the tech gadgets that got CNN editors through 2020. That's right. Air Doctor is a professional quality air purifier with a medical-grade ultra-HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and virus. The Air Doctor captures 100% of particles at 0.003 microns. That's 100 times more effective than ordinary HEPA filters. Powerful enough to circulate the air in a 450-square-foot room six times per hour, we're spending a lot of time indoors. We've been locked indoors. 90% of our time is indoors, and lockdowns have not made that easier, nor has it made it safer. According to the EPA, indoor air can actually be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air. No kidding. No need to worry about noise. Air Doctor uses their exclusive professional whisper jet fan that is 30% quieter than the fans found in ordinary air purifiers. That means you can run Air Doctor at the highest speeds while enjoying a peaceful home environment. It really takes the guesswork out of clean air with its auto mode feature that uses laser air sensor to detect air quality and automatically adjust to correct filtration levels. That is it. Professional quality, HEPA air filter, recommended by leading experts, effective ways to reduce airborne germs and viruses and protect your home. Make sure you get an air doctor to keep you and your family safe. Air doctor comes with no questions asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for refund. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, use promo code DREW, and you'll receive a 35% discount. That's right, 35% off, but only if you go to airdoctorpro.com and use our promo code DREW. Well, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and throughout June, we are proud to join the cause of destigmatizing therapy. That's right. There should be no reason people are stigmatized for seeing a therapist or talking about mental health or having mental health issues any other than any other any other than seeing the dermatologist or the cardiologist. If you're struggling, BetterHelp will assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. The therapists have a broad range of expertise that may not be locally available in your area. The service is available for clients worldwide, however. Log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You can schedule weekly video, phone, even live chat sessions. BetterHelp, you've heard me talk about it. I've referred patients. I've referred family. It's committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And our listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is Better, H-E-L-P dot slash Drew. So I think disgust is one of the most powerful emotions that we have. It's, it's, it's the one that motivates action almost more than any other mm-hmm. Uh because it, it's a it's a moving away emotion, right? 
Uh, yeah. And, and so t- talk more about that and how disgust figures into this. I'd like to be able to, but again, disgust, I think I focus more on anger than disgust. I kind of mentioned disgust in passing, uh, so I, I wouldn't, be, okay. wouldn't be qualified to kind of push okay. us down that route. So you mentioned fairness a couple of times. And, mm. and, you know, I don't know where you uh, come in on an understanding of fairness and humans' uh, sense of fairness. Um, but my sense is fairness is an extremely underdeveloped moral sensibility. In other words, five-year-olds are very preoccupied with fairness. Uh, there is a higher order <laughs> than fairness because uh, a lot of things are not fair that are still good. So mm-hmm. what? And it seems like fairness is the order of the day. Like that's all I hear people talking about: is fairness, fair, what's fair, it's fair. It's like yeah, 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 yeah. But but maybe there's a, a better way of thinking about it than fairness. Or am I getting this wrong? No, I think I think fairness is is the word of the day. But. I, the, this, I guess this ties into Jonathan Haidt's work on, on moral foundation theory, where he says that there's different dimensions of morality. There could be fairness. There could be uh, maybe an emphasis on, on, on loyalty, different dimensions of, of morality, fairness, loyalty, etc. And whereas maybe the political left would have more of a focus on fairness as their primary dimension. That's actually been measured. Those, That's actually been yeah, measured yeah, to be true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Those on the right would would prioritize maybe loyalty more more highly. Well, so as you, my, you, you I, I, what I heard uh, Haidt pres, present his stuff, and I think what he was saying was that the left has one dimension of morality, and the right had three, which was, if I remember right, some sort of religious thing, some sort of they, they had like three different mm-hmm. things that they were thinking about uh, as opposed to fairness. And and the the hard yeah. part uh, we're getting off into a different topic here, but but how do we get those things to align because they're they're different. A very good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a question for John Height. Yeah, but I yeah. don't know. But again, but you can you can certainly see the 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 societal implications of of these preferences. So, one thing which which is striking is that having looked at all these studies that have been done on spite, what they tell us about spite, and how how prepared we are to spite people, because yeah. we are we are incredibly prepared to spite people. I mean, this this kind of shocked me. Quite how willing we are to to spite people. Yeah. Um, and again, some of that is related to morality so again if we feel that somebody has gotten ahead of us undeservingly the majority of us will pay a price despite that person at least in the economic games but even if somebody hasn't pulled ahead of us deservingly so let's say somebody has fairly earned more than we have and we get a chance to give away some of our money to make some of that other person's money be taken away still if, if we're anonymous then around 40 percent of us will still pay to take away some of that other person's money they will pay their own money to take away someone else's money even if it's fairly earned. And, well, frankly, it actually, it gets, it gets even worse. So you have this <laughs> thing ahead. called, it does, it's, we're a, we're a never-ending swamp. So you have this thing called, which I found called a do-gooder derogation. So in this, even if somebody is really nice and generous towards you, there are still some people who will pay to spite them. So that is, they'll pay their own money to have money taken away from these generous people, which seems completely insane because you're making them less likely to help you in future you, you know you're biting the hand that feeds you I mean, why on earth would you do that and the reason seems to be again wrapped up in status that by somebody being very generous they're getting kind of social brownie points they're looking attractive in terms of being somebody who everybody else would want to cooperate with them so you pull them down this is happening and again this is happening to um what's the name for microsoft right now bill gates Yep. Yeah. So, right. I mean, I mean, the guy's just trying to do good, and that's like, oh no, 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 no. You can't allow that. And I personally have experienced that a ton, and it's a very, it's one of the most unpleasant experiences you can go through when you come in with a clear heart and you're trying to help, mm-hmm. and you're punished for that. It's an extremely problematic. Uh, it, it, it again, from an evolutionary perspective, it's hard to understand because it makes you want to just give up. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that the person who was acting that way towards you benefited themselves from it? Oh, absolutely. They get these huge – well, it's mostly in social media now. Um, mm. and, and let's let's examine it a little bit. It's highly rewarded, right? So the tribe comes in and just goes and cheers that on, right? So there's tribal reward. There's probably some – uh, neurobiological, you know, nucleus accumbens activation in the act of doing it in the first place. This gratification of anger with an object, um, and and interestingly, well, go ahead. Let's talk about that particular issue. Then I'll tell you what happens when I actually contact these people because I yeah. I try to contact them because sometimes they're peers. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, I suppose on, on the face of it, if if they feel they are acting justly, I mean that. 
the feeling of punishing somebody is, is a well, phenomenally of course, rewarding. Of course, experience. of course, they feel justified. Even 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 if they are completely misreading the circumstance, they feel righteous. And then the yeah. tribe tribe comes in. On t- that's what fake news comes from. That is the source of fake news, right there. Uh, people, I think we, we could go ahead. We, we could. Say, I think we we can literally addict to yeah. to these acts of perceived justice. Yeah. So if you pop somebody in the scanner and give them a chance to uh, punish somebody who's acted unfairly, yeah. and then you look at what's happening in the brain, you see the the, the dorsal striatum going going nuts, which is exactly what you'd see if you gave somebody who was maybe addicted to cocaine in the scanner. If you said that cocaine is coming to you. Exactly the same basic brain areas and getting involved as again this is more your area than mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's it's literally we, we can addict to to justice to this feeling of of righteousness. Right, and I and it's it's primitive. It needs to be regulated. I mean, that's, we help with drug addicts. We help them regulate this stuff. Um, mm. Just an aside, what do you think the dorsal striatum's function is? Just kind of do that again. Good job. Which which element? Which element? Well, reward <clears throat> the striatum per se. But but I, I you're talking about the medial forebrain, so that's all reward, reward, reward. And and I'm not sure we experience anything when that part is getting activated, other than the desire to do something again. <laughs> right, so that's my sense of it. Yeah, I wouldn't have the depth of knowledge you have there, but yeah. again, I, I could imagine that that quite likely being the case in terms of look, looking at the effects. Yeah, there, there's a right. there's a pleasure piece that's probably more in the uh, yeah. Mm, sort of the uh, more lateralizing, more, more lateral uh, structures in the brain, and certainly but in yes. the in the uh, insular cortex, which is now figuring prominently a lot of the stuff we're looking at. Right, that's really bit. interesting. Yeah. Uh, so well, so now let's talk about so so all this gratification and tribalism and blah blah blah, and that all fits with the spite models and the reward models and everything. Now, um, I so I contact individuals and I go, "Hey, come on, I, the, you've got it wrong. I'm a colleague. Let's let's get it together here." What 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 do you think? Uh, what do you imagine an individual would do in response to that? Despite the the spite models help uh, us understand what that person is experiencing, because I find yes. it mystifying. It's a good question, I guess. I mean, maybe maybe if we if we walk it back a step, so I mean, presumably, I mean, we're, we're generally we might disagree. We're generally pretty nice creatures. We have empathy, so presumably, whoever's coming coming after you would would normally feel the pain they're causing in you, um, and, and would be dissuaded from mm-hmm. from hurting hurting you, which you would hope. The really weird thing is is what happens in our brains to kind of overcome that empathy to allow us to spite people. So in order to spite somebody, you have to overcome that natural empathy we have, which blocks us um, right. from hurting other people, That's right. which encourages us to be cooperative. So there's a really nice study in the States by uh, Fincher and Tetlock where they looked at what happened in the brains of people who were watching other people violate social norms. And what they found was if, if you watch somebody's face who's, who's violating a social norm, your brain activity shifts from being less in terms of regions associated with visual face processing and more into object processing. Yeah. So literally, if somebody is breaking a social norm, you your brain treats their face as more object-like. Yep. So you are literally dehumanizing. You, they yep. literally look less human to you, yep. which then allows you to punish them. So there's some, there's some really dark mechanisms in our brain which allow us to do that punishing in the first place. Yeah, that, that I think is why my instinct is to reach out to these people and go, first of all, I, I, oftentimes there's intellectually no disagreement, which I find bizarre mm-hmm. that they would twist the information to to put someone into that object mode. But they're obviously motivated to do so for some reason. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't do it. And, and then when I reach out, here's what I get is resistance, fear, yeah. resistance. Because to then have me be – and and my and interesting, my instinct is persistence because like, no, 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 I, you need to actually contact me. We, not just email exchanges. We need to have an exchange, and and my you know my deepest professional instinct is as a colleague. You know, oftentimes our colleagues like you. What happened to your professional behavior? Just, if you, you can you can disagree as colleagues. Let's 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 get on the same page. And by the way, most of the time I agree, but they resist that opportunity to turn their object into a person because guess what? Guess what they're going to feel. You'll love this if they if the person becomes a human. They're going to feel shame. Yeah, they're going to feel shame. I did something bad, right? Isn't that where shame kicks in? Shame and guilt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so they yeah. resist like hell. So that's very, very interesting. So I'm guessing. I mean, that's the 
that must be the strategy for dealing with spite then, right? Helping the object of the spite turn into a human being? I think so, yeah. I mean, in terms of it, it being a colleague, kind of maybe being the most potentially vicious critic, critic I mean, it kind of ties back into that, that Gore Vidal quote about, you know, every time a friend succeeds, part of me dies. <laughs> that, you know, yeah. th- those closest to you. Yeah, right? yeah. They're, they're most threatening to you. So, yeah. So local but, but, but just, you know, in medicine, very accustomed to the abuse, the, the mutual abuse. <laughs> very, very accustomed to that. that that's, but it's usually done in a intellectually honest way, not just sniping uh, ad hominem, right? Mm. It, it's really done about the, not the person but the position. And the, not just yeah. their—I don't mean their their hierarchical position. I mean their intellectual position. And you attack that. Uh, now it's become ad hominem, which is <laughs> weird, 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 weird to me. It's so primitive. It's like we've become primitive. Yeah, no, again, b- b- yeah, absolutely. Because those evolved mechanisms are there. So, um, so just on, my, on, my, on that kind of the people closest to you being being potentially the most spiteful. So again, if you, there's some nice studies from, from Namibia where they look at um, the status of, of, of people um, on the land. So that those with, those with a very kind of poor grazing ground will be more spiteful than those with quite plush and verdant um, grazing grounds with the idea being that the more local competition that you're potentially facing, that the more vicious you are going to get and the more spiteful you're going to be. So, and then it's, it seems that, Potential neuro, potential neural mechanisms kick in, which which encourage us to be spiteful if we see some kind of threat of scarcity in, in our environment. I mean, that can be maybe a cognitive perception of scarcity, or maybe even a literal kind of biological uh, manifestation of scarcity. So, sounds is, like, I'll give you an example. Isn't this sort of Nietzsche's construct, right? Is the oh, there's it, right. There's a good bit of Nietzsche in my book. Yeah. <laughs> so, so talk about that for a second. Um. Well, before I go to Nietzsche, let, let, let's stay with maybe where I'm okay, happy with the up. neuroscience. Yeah, before, okay, go ahead. Before I get putting my foot in, do, do you make the Nietzsche explicit, or is it you just you just use is Nietzsche sort of the echoes in the in the background? Oh, Nietzsche makes himself explicit. Okay, okay, no that, okay. No keeping him down. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> so just on, on the neuroscience side, so there's, there's some really nice work coming out of Yale out of uh, Professor Molly Crockett's lab. So they they suggested that. Again, that there must be some kind of signal in the environment when the world gets more competitive, which pushes us to be more spiteful. There must be some kind of mechanism there. And what they argued was that it's it's related to the serotonin system in that, um, so tryptophan, which is obviously a component of serotonin, is an essential amino acid. We can, we can only get it from our diet. Mm-hmm. So if the world becomes more scarce, we get less tryptophan. And that has a knock-on effect in dropping serotonin levels. Yeah, well, that, 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 doesn't happen, be, that doesn't happen in the modern world. Just no, eat an ear again, of corn and you're done for the week, <laughs> you know. But it, it seems to be at least one form of mechanism. And there might, okay. again, there might be right. a cognitive equivalent. Right, fair enough. So again, in, in their lab, again, when they've had people come in, they've given people kind of forms of SSRIs, which have boosted serotonin. That's made them play the ultimating game less spiteful. And conversely, when they've had a, given the person a drink, which depletes tryptophan, reduces available serotonin, again, that's made them act more spitefully immediately. Well, you could, you could in, in hidden in that uh, material is an argument that depression would increase more spitefulness. That would it would it would seem to follow from that. Yeah, yeah. keep yeah. going. Go ahead. Yeah. So again, this, this seems to be this, this really neat neurobiomechanism, which, which which the world, which allows us to talk to the world and to change our behaviour. Um, yeah. So that's Nietzsche. I mean, you can go after Nietzsche. Yeah. So again, I mean, what, what's the famous? Let's pick pick a Nietzsche quote. There's so many. Um, Beware those in whom the impulse to punish is powerful. Is mm. it's a classic one? Mm-hmm. Um, because part of Part of what I've been reading was about how do we understand what punishment is? So maybe classically, we might think of punishment as a way to deter people, to make them behave better. Whereas a more converse, an alternative view seems to be that we don't actually punish for any kind of broad-minded social gains. We punish um, in order to basically harm the other person and therefore kind of relatively gain ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the literature seems to kind of support Nietzsche's argument that punishment is often very self-centered and is done for personal reasons uh, rather than any kind of idea about uh, boosting cooperation. So, I mean, there's do good a derogation where you're punishing somebody, but they've tried to be generous to you. So you're not trying to make them act better. If anything, you're, you're making them act worse. Mm-hmm. You're punishing for your own domination. How does um, that end up? Do we have any data on that? Typically badly, I imagine. 
Yeah, well, that's kind of the mode we're in these days, isn't it? Seems like. Seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Other studies, again, they they play repeated rounds of games and they look when people punish the most. And they tend to find that folks tend to punish most in the last round of a game where, you know, you're not going to change the person's behavior because you're not playing with them anymore. Any punishment in the last round would simply be to exert your domination rather than make the other person behave better. Um, so, uh, oh, that's interesting. So, so back, find that, you know, back to Nietzsche, the impulse is so strong that his position was that we create a fantasy that the person we want to punish is going to be punished if we have no power. We create this. Yeah. We he, didn't he have the zookeeper or zoo? Was that him that had that analogy? That uh, anyway, he he sort of thought God. If I remember, this was Nietzsche that God was this fantasy to help punish the people that were in power if you felt disempowered. Yes. So yeah, he would see Nietzsche would argue that again, Christianity was a form of I'll put this in quite much slave morality. Slave morality. Slave morality. Yeah. yeah, that's what he called it. That again, it, it was uh, all driven by resentment, and uh, again, it was it was a, it was a complex mechanism in order to to boost the social status of, of those at the bottom relative so, to the top. So, so now you brought in a new word, resentment. Does that figure into all this? I think quite often we're quite good at hiding our resentment from ourselves. Again, we think that we're doing things for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Because again, if, if we believe it, then other people are more likely to believe it. So I think that we, we mask maybe our true motives from ourselves. And therefore, we, we think that we're doing good. And in fact, and you, but by the way, being resentful doesn't preclude that you do good, right? It could be no. the motivation that causes you to do good. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the proof is in the pudding. The question is whether you actually do good or not. And then that's where things get a little complicated. So I, I've been sort of indulging myself in my curiosity. Tell me what you want people to know about the, spite the upside of your downside. I guess, I guess it's about understanding what tendencies are in us so that, again, we can control our behavior based on some kind of mindfulness and awareness of maybe what evolution is pushing us to do. You know, What is that hand at our back and how can we kind of – seize that hand by the wrist and kind of guide it where we want to go to rather than letting other people uh, or evolution kind of push us in a certain direction. Seems to one be of the one, other things. Go ahead. One so, of the other things. After you, go on, go on. I was say it seems to me that one of the ways to do that is to assess the uh, manifestations. In other words, are we actually doing something good? And that is really hard to assess. That's in the eye of the beholder. Yes. Yes. I, I guess, I guess you, you just have to have your best shot at what you think is is reasonable. And, and if I know the human brain, these strong motivations distort everything we think and it distort yeah. our reasoning. So it's like, uh, I'm not sure I trust people. Maybe that's where hierarchy comes in. But anyway, you were going to make a point. Go ahead. So, uh, one of the other things is potential benefits of spite. So again, we've talked about, you know, if, if you're, so actually coming back to your, your earlier point about social media. So yeah, if somebody wrongs you and you punish them back, there's no real social brownie points in that. You're just seen as being vengeful. Yeah. If somebody else hurts a third person and then you kind of weigh in and you punish the person who's hurt the third party, so-called third party punishment, mm-hmm. there is social brownie points in that. Mm-hmm. So again, when it comes to social media, what you're potentially seeing is is everybody leaping on somebody who, who hasn't necessarily harmed them personally. There seems to be this, this, this mechanism that encourages us to punish people who have behaved unfairly towards others because, again, that there's reputational gains in it. So spite seems to lead to potential reputational gains. gains. Anger, I mean, anger more generally. Again, if you think about the, the evolutionary purpose of anger, it seems to be that anger encourages us to act in a way that forces other people to value us according to our estimation. So again, if, you've been, if you feel you've been treated unfairly or undeservingly, then the anger wells up. It makes you act in a way that forces the person to, to next time to value you more and not act in that way. So there's, there's those kind of obvious immediate gains of spiteful behavior. But there's also other things that seem to come through. So spiteful people seem to have some kind of competitive edge so there was one study where folks were asked to do some number adding tasks. So they were given like a bunch of numbers, asked to add them up and to solve as many puzzles as they could do in a couple of minutes. And then they were told there was a prize on offer for the next round. And therefore it was seen how much better they got. Now the spiteful people improved twice as much as the non-spiteful people. Say it so again. It Say that again. Like the, Say it again. The spiteful people got twice as good 
once they were compelled by competition and a prize as compared to the non-spyful people. The hey, spyful people to... seem to excel under conditions of competition. Marie wasn't getting enough sleep. Every night she struggled with poor sleep, restless legs, but then she made a small change and one month later everything was better. All because she started taking Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers, the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. Marie left a five-star rating saying, I'd give this 100 stars if I could. Within one month of use, I went from daily struggles with restless legs, constipation, poor sleep, to no struggles with any of that. I know it sounds dramatic and far-fetched, but it is true. And Marie is not the only one getting better sleep after taking Magnesium Breakthrough. Amanda says, quote, I fall asleep much faster and stay asleep now until normal waking hours. You have a customer for life. And Bill says, quote, on the first night of taking Magnesium Breakthrough, my deep sleep jumped up to two hours, which has been the highest reading so far from my Oura Ring. Listen, if you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can do is start by getting enough magnesium. It's simple. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement you find. Most magnesium supplements use only two of the cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they may not fix your magnesium deficiency or then may not help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I'm suggesting Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed how much better you sleep. Magnesium is known to help sleep, and how much more rested you'll feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Use code DrDrew10 during checkout to save 10%. That is magbreakthrough.com slash DREW and use the code DRDREW, DrDrew10, at checkout to save 10%. Well, as men, we like fixing things, but uh, we don't go to the doctor so much. Uh, We don't like it for many, many different reasons. But now with Get Roman, you can get free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED from the comfort and privacy of your home. No going into the waiting room, no uncomfortable questions. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment for you. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward. It is discreet. It's just the way we like it. It's easy, and it's an efficiency. We should be using the Internet for this sort of thing. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Drew. And complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving your home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Why not? Go to GetRoman.com slash Drew now and you'll get 15% off your first month. It really is time to take care of your ED. And remember, get started today and you will save $15 on your first order of ED treatment. So again, this is to be. yeah. This is again that that motivation is important, right? Motivation is is a really powerful phenomenon in human beings. Yeah, I mean, and on that exciting, it seems to be because the spiteful person wants to be ahead of other people. Well, I mean, look at look at what happens in, when two fighters get in the ring. They build all this resentment and spite towards one another as a way of motivating aggression in the ring, right? Mm, partially, I mean. Yes, you got selfish interests coming to play there. So it's well, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit murky, but, but I'm but, just thinking yeah. of the motivational aspects of spite. But keep going. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that, that seems to be this this desire to be ahead, mm. which you could argue has become maybe frowned upon somewhat today, um, in favor of more egalitarian goals, understandably. But that desire to be ahead seems to be present in a spiteful person and helps them succeed. Hmm. It seems to be some evidence linking spite to increased creativity as well. So. Although that's that's more through the, the have, trait have of they measured have you have you measured or anybody done anything you know measurements of uh, spiteful tendencies in the CEOs or the Mark Zuckerbergs or Bill Gates or anything like that is there, is there any data to that extent? I haven't seen that kind of data. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot done on on, on psychopathy in in the boardroom, but I haven't seen much <laughs> on the spite in the boardroom. Because my um, guess is they're less spiteful, way less. Spite I seems to be a response to hierarchy, right? Yes, but again, you might think that in the business world that you know you're so focused on profit and the bottom line yeah. that any spiteful inclinations that are going to cause you to lose, yes. you know, you'd have those under control yes, as a successful yes. business person. Yes. That said, I mean, the, the classic example would be Warren Buffett and mm-hmm. um, when he acquired Berkshire Hathaway. So when he was looking to acquire Berkshire Hathaway, it was basically a, it was a failing kind of fabric textile company a with a bunch company. of mills. It was a shirt company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And the, the management were basically selling mills. And when they sold off the mill, they'd use the money to buy back the shares. So Buffett bought a pile of shares and said to the management, next time you come around to selling a mill, I want to buy some shares, come to me and I'll sell you the shares. And they said grand. And he agreed that he'd sell them shares at like I think it's $11.50 a share. The company then sells, sends, sells a mill and comes back to Buffett and says to him, okay, we'll buy some shares for you, but we're going to give you an eighth of a dollar less than we initially, originally, originally said. So we'll pay you uh, 11.38 a share. And Buffett got pretty annoyed by that. The anger and the unfairness um, welled up and it seemed to kick in a spiteful response because he, he, he bought up bunches of shares. He got ownership of the company and he, he fired part of the management who had offended him. So, and he says that he feels that he acted out of spite and that was sort of the wrong thing to do. And he estimates that because of the amount of money that he then had tied up in a failing textile company that lost him billions over the years. So yeah. he, even our business titans aren't immune. To yeah, of course. And, and and he is sort of, you know, spectrum-y, you know, in his own little way. And so it's interesting because I think now he he prides himself in being completely non-emotional, but it's, it's mm-hmm. which begs the issue, it, it, can you control spite? <laughs> When it wells up, and uh, I guess there's and two different questions. You know, one is can you control this by it? The other is can you control how you respond to it? Which is a different question. Yeah. I think again, it's, it's looking at how you can control the anger, and you're going to be standard on an anger management technique. So you know, taking a timeout. So again, on the ultimatum game, if there's a timeout between you receiving a lousy offer and you making a choice, that timeout makes you respond less spitefully. Um, similarly, drugs that could well, decrease that's the interesting. Anger. That's interesting because the social media doesn't allow for that breather. You know what I mean? It's a very immediate turnaround. I think anything that makes us respond quickly yeah. is a danger to our autonomy because, again, all sorts of thoughts and impulses bubble up in us. And what, what makes us human is the ability not to immediately react to those thoughts or feelings but to make some kind of judgment as to is this the, the right way to respond. So you need that time to think and to, to gain your autonomy over yourself. Otherwise, you're just reacting. Um, yeah, and, pr- that's the primitive part again. It is in the book, do you address the impact of social media or at least the algorithms and how they encourage quick response? I talk about it briefly, yep, in terms of I'm primarily focusing on the fact that because this third-party punishment, punishing others who have punished others, um, when, when we don't have a horse in the race, because that gives reputational gains, yeah. social media just allows that to go absolutely wild. I mean, it's, it turns into, into an orgy of uh, an orgy of righteous punishment. I, I can't wait again, to read the book. And the, the spite, the upside of your downside. So let's wrap up. <clears throat> Do you, are, dare you make any predictions? <laughs> are, are you willing to w- walk into those waters a little bit based on your understanding of spite? Where are we going with this? How how does this work? How do we? How do we get this under control? What's your hunch on what the future is? Say in the next one to three years of spite. I think it's all going to depend on, on on the structures that we put in place, and because the structures that we have in place will be what permits certain is, behaviors to flourish. Is anybody, is anybody talking about this? Is anybody putting those structures in place? I don't hear the social media giants talking about it. Well, again, I'm not sure that this, the sort of changes you'd have to make to social media to increase the autonomy of users is probably not the sort of thing that's going to make you a lot of money. So, again, there's financial incentives and human autonomy seem to be pushing in, in different directions. So um, your prediction is? Uh, I don't think heaven on earth is going to arrive anytime soon. Is hell? I think we're stuck in the uh, a human limbo. Um, so it's, I, it's like pur- purgatory. Think... We're just going to be in purgatory for a while. <laughs> we're carrying the I'd rocks like to... on our back that Dante <laughs> predicted. I'd like to think that we we can continue as a, as a species to learn more about what we do and we can decide what we think is right and drive our behavior forward the way we want to, whether commercial interests and society is amenable to that. So you think know. there'll be a synthesis? There, there will be. We're, we're going one way now and we'll sort of come back to some sort of synthetic place somehow or another yeah i'm i'm, I'm pessimistic pessimistically optimistic okay okay to me that means that it's going to get worse before it gets better <laughs> so which is probably true quite possibly yeah. quite possibly listen simon i do appreciate the conversation very interesting stuff i hope i didn't take you in too many weird directions i was just sort of following my curiosity on the topic which is vast uh, and i can't wait to read the book uh spite the upside of your downside any any last Comments on your behalf? Nope, just an um, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a minute. Uh, did we did we add it? Did we do it justice? Did we do the topic justice? 
I think we did, yeah. But again, oh, fair enough. Very keen to talk more about hallucinations at some point, but I think we've given, we've given Spite a good run there. Let's do that. Thank you so much, sir. And uh, again, the website is simonmccarthyjones.com. Book is Spite, The Upside of Your Downside. Go get it now, and I'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.